Welcome to our Brave Feminine Leadership interview series where we get to dig into delicious conversations with global leaders and I get to ask them all about women in leadership and we get to hear their stories and we get to soak up their wisdom and their perspective on life and leadership. Today I am super excited to be joined by Rhonda Morris. Rhonda, welcome to the conversation. Thank you for having me, Melissa. It's exciting to be here. My pleasure. So I'm going to quickly share your bio and um, then we are going to jump straight in. So um, Rhonda Morris is the Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer for Chevron Corporation. So she's been there since 2016 and she's responsible for shaping and driving Chevron's people and culture strategy. In 2021, Rhonda was inducted as a fellow in the National Academy of Human Resources, which is the highest honour granted in the HR profession. Congratulations. She serves on numerous boards, including the United Negro College Fund, the Board of Opportunity at Work, which is a not-for-profit organisation designed to rewire the labour market. She's also a member of the HR Policy Association Board of Directors and the Better Up Advisory Growth Council. So I am so thrilled to have you here with me today, Rhonda, and really look forward to getting into our conversation. For anyone in the audience who hasn't had the pleasure of coming across you before, would you share your story with us? Tell us who you are as a human being and um, let's jump right in. Well, I would start by saying I am a daughter. I'm very fortunate my mother lives 10 miles away from where I do in Northern California. I am a mother, I am a wife, um, I am a sister, I am an aunt, and hopefully I am a good friend. And I am uh, an employee at Chevron Corporation. And I've actually been here. One of my least favorite questions of late is how long have you worked for Chevron? I've been in my role since 2016, but I actually have been with the company for 30 years. So over half my life, wow. um, we are a company that um, still has a long-term employment model. And we still have a lot of employees who spend the bulk, if not the majority of their careers here. And I'm a little bit... Um, a little bit unusual because I was not recruited off campus by the company. I actually left Chevron and came back. I spent seven years working outside of the HR function, um, managing our fuels business in Europe before we sold it to Valero. And I've been really fortunate, Melissa, because I've been able to have this portfolio career and stay in the same company and actually grow old with some of my colleagues. And I think in a world where communities don't exist like they used to. People don't go to church as much as they did. They don't know their neighbors as well as um, they did, at least when I was growing up. We have this culture in this community where we actually grow, go through all kinds of life experiences with each other, whether it's dating, getting married, having kids, um, parents getting older, parents passing away in these life experience, experiences, and it just builds a strong connective tissue across the organization, which is why I've spent so much time here. I have to ask you straight away, why is that your least favorite question? Because most people nowadays don't spend um, that much time in one company. In fact, I on one of you mentioned some of the boards that I serve on, and most of them, in fact, all of them are nonprofit boards. And in one of the board meetings, one of my colleagues, another board member, said, "How in the world could you stay at one company for so long? That's got to be so boring." So one is I have to explain 
the reasons I've stayed, which I'm quite proud of. But the other one is sometimes the people who ask me, how long have you worked at Chevron? They have not been alive as long as I've worked for the company. So, so there's, there's a bit of making me feel a little bit old. Look, it's one of the upsides of getting older. You know, it's a privilege yes. and, uh, and we get to meet some people who weren't born when we when we started out. <laughs> um, I think it is such an extraordinary, um, uh, you know, asset for people to have found a company where you've navigated that length of time in your career and by the sounds of it grown so much in that time and been able to build a whole portfolio of interests around it. Um, so I ask it from that point of view only. So I just want to um, jump in and say, you know, in that career, are there moments that stand out that you've been particularly intentional about the direction of your career? Can you think of any of those that you could share with us? I, I can. I have one um, memory that I, I will never, ever forget. And it's when I was selected for what I'd call my big break position. And at that time, our company was headquartered in San Francisco. And I was selected to be the HR manager for our marketing organization. And the vice president of marketing, who was this legendary executive, took me for lunch in San Francisco. And as we were walking back to the office, he mentioned to me that he received a phone call. And the phone call was someone asking him, the reasons I was selected for a job and was I a diversity selection? And as we're walking, I could feel myself getting very angry. And I thought, how, how insulting is that? Number one and number two, who in the world would actually pick up the phone and call this man and ask him that question? And I spent a large part of my afternoon consumed by who was this person. And then I had this, um, this epiphany that this is not about me. This is about the other person. And I am not going to let someone project their beliefs about why I was selected for a position on me. And it was very powerful because I've always focused on letting my the quality and the caliber of my work and results speak for my skills and capabilities. But despite that, um, I've throughout my career, I have always been... Um, questioned about whenever I've um, been selected for a bigger job about whether or not it's because of my race, my gender, or both. And at that moment, this was about 20 years ago, I learned how to intentionally not let that bother me. Mm. And in most cases, it didn't, but exactly the same thing happened when I was selected for this job. And I thought, you know, I thought I was over that. And I thought these things wouldn't bother me, but they they do less and less and less over time, but I have been very intentional. And I tell a lot of women leaders in our organization who share feedback with me that the same things happen to them, that that is not your issue. That is someone else's. And you've got to get over that in order to continue performing and doing and doing an excellent job. Can I ask practical ways that you got over that? Because in one shape or another, people everywhere are still experiencing that. Yes. Um, how, you know, what are the practical things people can do or that you did? So I came to that realization because I just was so consumed and so bothered by the fact that somebody would think this. And I thought, you know, and, and I have to believe in myself and I have to know without being arrogant that I contribute to this company. I am a smart person. I can point at specific things I've delivered. I can point at results. So it's almost like having as much, if not more confidence 
and faith in yourself than other people do. And it's just um, a little bit of uh, what's the right word? Uh, confident, self-confidence and not letting my self-confidence be challenged by other people taking attributes I don't control, my gender and my race, and making assumptions that those were factors in why I was or wasn't picked for a job. So you and I had a wonderful conversation, and one of the things that's kind of stayed with me was the, the power of a partnership in navigating your career. Yes. Um, let's talk about that and share that story with the audience. So I am going through this interesting challenge right now because my my best friend at work is retiring at the end of this month, and her name is Colleen Cervantes. And I mentioned that I've been with the company for a long time. Colleen's been with the company longer than I have, and she and I have basically grown up in Chevron together, and we've gone through those life experiences that I shared with you. Um, she and I have done that. She has um, two daughters. I have one daughter. She is the first person I told I was dating my husband. Um, she's the person I talked to if I had a career setback or didn't feel like I did my best in a meeting and she would do the same for, for me. And I've watched her progress through the company and take on larger roles. She's been a role model for me. She's been a very good friend. She's always been very honest and given me feedback when I've done well or tell, and she's given me feedback on how I can do things differently and better. And so I can't imagine my life in the company with her gone. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hosting, I hosted a small dinner for her about two weeks ago. And I'm hosting her large employee. We do, we have lots of traditions in the company. And there are a lot of people, she didn't want to have a large, we call them cake parties for employees to say a few words, let her know what she's meant to them. And I, I am the host of this and I am committed to, I am not going to cry. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've talked about, that's one of the things we've talked about is women crying at work. But then I thought, you know what, who cares if I cry? She's, uh, she is my great colleague. She's been there for me all the time. And I keep, I know she's not leaving my life, but she's leaving my work life. Mm. So you're actively recruiting for a new, yes. <laughs> a new confidant in the workplace. Well, I, I have a couple. She'll be replaced by a couple of people. And, and I think I mentioned to you, they're not all women because sometimes your allies and your advocates, they don't have to be the same gender that you are. They don't have to be the same race that you are. They have to be people who are really in your corner and they take on all different types of shapes, sizes, genders, races, ages. And those are the kinds of people I gravitate towards and I, and I, look, I look to. Why has it been so important, do you think, to have that strong relationship? In the world? I think it's important because sometimes women and people of color experience things that happen differently or you feel like you're experiencing them differently. And it's really, I have found it valuable to just test for, did I, how did I come across when I said, you know, whatever said X in a, in a meeting, or could I have gotten my point across in a different way? Or did this microaggression really happen or was I imagining it? <laughs> and so you have someone who can actually be kind of a mirror and a test for you. And I, I found that valuable because sometimes what I think might be a microaggression, I might be overly sensitive to or overreacting to. 
What's an example of, because again, people face these all day, every day. What are some examples do you think throughout your career that, you know, have sort of stopped you in your tracks? Sometimes I'll pick on one that happens to a lot of people. And, and I think I can thread together what I just said with this example. Um, I have been challenged with being talked over in meetings pretty much forever. And I've tried different strategies of how to deal with that. And one is saying, I will let me finish. Another is, I just said that. A third one is I've got two colleagues on our current leadership team that I have actually asked for help. I said, I can't always be the person saying, I just said that you guys need to help me. And they do. But I made a comment to an external consultant who was in one of our meetings about being talked over. And he said, you all talk over each other all the time. It isn't just you. And so having an external person say to me, and it made me think more and pay more attention to Am I the only one getting talked over? And, and in reality, Melissa, I, I wasn't. And so being, and that's something, again, I talk to a lot of our employees about. You can't have the person, especially if that person is an only or a double only, be the one who's advocating for his or herself. So how long have you been an only for? Well, I'm not one well, I sort of am, but I sort of am not on our leadership team. It's throughout my career, it's happened It's happened a lot, um, pretty much in almost every job that I've had. When I took on this role reporting um, to our CEO, I was the only woman, I was the only person of color on the leadership team, and that lasted for several years, and it, it's hard. And that's something that is talked about a little bit. I think the experiences of what that feels like should be discussed more because I think perspective is important. Mm -hmm. And part of how you gain perspective is learning through the experiences of, of others if you're not having that experience your, yourself. So it's territory I'm quite familiar with. You shared, and I just, I would love us to get into this. You shared, you know, a very personal reflection post the death of George Floyd. And I just wonder if I can get you to, to kind of take us into that point in time in your career. Yes. And the story that we talked about, and I've just recently started sharing this uh, publicly, George Floyd was murdered at the end of May of 2020. That is right kind of at the very beginning of the pandemic. And so there are just there's all kinds of turmoil going on in the world. And at the time George Floyd was murdered, I was still the only female, the only person of color on our leadership team. And our leadership team had been meeting every day for um, because we were still in a, in a crisis and we had not spoken about what happened with George Floyd in any of our meetings. And I recall one of my colleagues calling me on video and he's like, how are you? And I said, well, to be honest with you, I'm struggling. And he said, why? And I thought, wow. And this was on a day when in America, buildings literally were on fire. And I thought, how can you not know the reasons this is bothering me as a black American? And so I made a decision to write a message to my peers about um, how I was feeling and that I was not okay. And that I had thought about when we'd had an offsite months earlier, sharing what it's like to be the only female, the only person of color. But at that time, I didn't feel psychologically safe to do it. I said, but soon I will. 
And in the meantime, I would like, I shared some information with them that I thought would be useful understanding my perspective as, as a Black American. So fast forward, probably took me about two months to figure out how do I talk about this in a way where one, um, they understand my perspective and two, it's a discussion. It's not sort of, it's not an adversarial conversation. It's just, this is what my life and my career have been like. Yes. And examples that I shared with them were um, simple things like in every job I've ever had in 30 years, in every organization, I have always been the highest ranking Black female. And this goes back to being a fairly low level person in one of our manufacturing facilities. And when you are the highest ranking or the only Black female, something as simple as filling out an employee survey is difficult because you're identifiable as soon as you check um, gender, race, and grade, and what grade band that you're in. And these are experiences they don't necessarily, they have not had to go through or even think about. So tell us about that conversation then. So I started out by talking about all the things that we had in common. Um, we have, and again, I mentioned we have, we kind of, we grow old together. And there are a number of people on our leadership team that through the course of my career, I had been on a leadership team with before, or I had actually reported to. And so I talked about our working relationship. Almost every single one of them. I'm a huge American baseball fan. I've been to a baseball game with them. And so I talked about the things that we have in common. And then I shifted to how we're different. And I said, I'll start with the obvious. And what's obvious is gender. <laughs> and, you know, that got a little bit of a laugh. So you thinking through how to do this again in a neutral way. And then I just walked through kind of the experiences I've had in my 30 years of being the highest ranking black female in every role of not being on a business leadership team ever with another black woman. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about how I was trying to construct the message, I'm not sure any of them could make a statement. I've been the only white male on any leadership team my whole career, yeah. Yeah. ever. And so it was more to try to be thoughtful about just sharing factual experiences and the reality of what it, what my career here has been like. I imagine so many people in your shoes. Um, I mean, number one, um, that it's it's an extraordinarily brave thing to do, and you're doing it in an organisation that you have been at for a really long time and know that you're valued and, you know, all of those things. And I remember us sort of talking about the courage it took for you to do that because you really were not okay at that point. Right. Um, I can only imagine how challenging that is for people who don't have those advantages that you have in terms of leading into that conversation, what advice would you give to someone? Because it's such an important conversation. Well, the first thing I would share is whoever the person is or wherever they are, they're not alone. Mm -hmm. And the person who is an ally or an advocate might not even be in your own company. And I have, um, I spend quite a bit of time with peers of mine in other organizations. Some of them happen to be heads of HR who happen to be Black, who happen to have similar experiences. And so I would 
almost go on a quest to find someone in a similar situation because when you do that you realize you're not alone and these experiences that you're having you're not the only person who's having those experiences and oftentimes I I like to learn from other people Um, you can learn different ways to cope with from people who either have experiences like what you're having because sadly these are not new (laughs) They're, they're not new and in and they're not going to go away, I don't think, anytime soon. So there are people you can learn from, techniques and strategies that um, you can deal with to help. And sometimes uh, the further you are up in an organization, like you mentioned, you can take a risk and you can do what I, I did. Um, the only risk for me of having that conversation with my peers was I was very uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> I was very uncomfortable. I was not afraid if I do this, I'm going to lose my job. I was not afraid if I do this, they're going to retaliate against me. But someone else might have those fears and that would prevent them from having that that kind of conversation. It's very real, isn't it? It is. All of this, it's very real. Um, and for all the talk that we've been doing, you know, we're not really seeing a lot of progress. Right. You know, what, what's your perspective on that? You know, why are we not seeing more female CEOs? Why are we not seeing more uh, female black CEOs? Like, what, what's your perspective on this? Well, I on the optimism, pessimism scale, I move back and forth um, a lot. I'm probably on the optimism side today. And I, I think part of it has to do with something just as simple as time. If you really think about when were women allowed access to the same opportunities that men had, whether it was education or roles, it hasn't been that long ago. The same thing for for Black, for Black Americans. It, it hasn't been. I've was born in the 60s. And and as a small child, I had no idea what was going on in the civil rights movement. I learned more about that when I was in college. And I grew up with parents who actually left the South and moved to Northern California to get away from that. And they never talked about it. And so there's this learning and understanding of history that I think is important, number one. And, and number two, I believe, well, I will share my own experience. Um, Women take on more at home and sometimes at, at, at work. Um, I mentioned my mother lives close by. I'm I'm a sandwich generation person. I I spent part of yesterday preparing my mother's dinner and driving it to her house and turning around and coming home and then preparing dinner for my family and then getting ready to for work on my day. And sometimes I think, are my male colleagues doing this? And I think the answer to that is no. <laughs> Maybe some of them are, but the majority of them of them aren't. And that takes a toll. And it it is really difficult. And we make these life trade-offs. Um, I often think, could I be a better mother? Sure. Could I be a better wife? Could I be a better leader at work? And so you're trying to do your best juggling all of all of these things. And for some people, um, it's just they reach a point where it's too much. Let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. 
I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. Mm. And we are seeing women leave organisations in greater numbers. Yes. You know, they're calling out burnout and they're calling out lack of opportunity as the key reasons for it. Um, I mentioned to you that I did a fascinating interview recently with Professor Laurie Weingart. Yes. And she's at Carnegie Mellon and they've, they've done all this research that validates the fact that what you just said about suspecting women often take more on at work, um, they do. And often right. it's non-promotable work, uh, being right. in communities and things like that. So right. it's an interesting, interesting um, piece of the puzzle, but I think awareness is one of the first steps, right? Thanks. Hello? I, I, I wonder too if we are not as good at saying no. And that's part of their research because they ask three things. Is it because we get asked more? Is it because we can't say no? And is it because we volunteer more often? Like I think there were, you know, there were kind of three things. And when they looked at it, it's like a combination of all of those things, but there's something bigger going on. Do you know, I I wanted to ask you because post um, post George Floyd, and I, I only bring it up because it was how you and I met, you started running these conversations called Leading in the B-Suite where you interviewed prominent black leaders and started to talk about the gaps between the walk and the talk and the power of role models. Can you just share those conversations and some of the key things that you you heard in those conversations? Yes, um, I am incredibly happy to talk about the project that the interview series that Adam Bryant and I have on LinkedIn. And we did start it after um, George Floyd was murdered. Adam interviewed me. There's a little bit of a backstory I'll I'll share. Um, He interviewed me for a different series he does on LinkedIn, and we ended up staying in touch and being friends. I was a huge fan of his Corner Office series in the New York Times. And I noticed when he did that series, he interviewed a number of women and he interviewed a number of people of color. And so as we were talking after George Floyd was murdered, and if you remember, there were a number of very high-ranking Black um, people leaders in the military or academics or even police officers who were sharing these stories that had not been shared before because a lot of the things that have been happening have been happening for a long time and no one was talking about them and so and companies were making um, new or renewed commitments to the advancement of black american employees and having discussions about race and racism in america and the question is is this a movement or is it a moment? And so to keep this conversation going, Adam and I had this idea of, well, let's, why not start interviewing very senior level Black leaders and asking them about their life stories, their leadership lessons, and about racism and headwinds and tailwinds and how have they manage the headwinds and what tailwinds did they have they used to be um, to get to the levels they have reached um, in whatever organization he or she is in. And it, it's it been absolutely fascinating, Melissa. The, some of the stories are the same. Um, the story, I'll give you a couple of examples. And I've had a number of these experiences. If you take your direct reports out to dinner for a meal, people will assume that you're not the boss and hand the bill to someone else. Yeah. Um, or if you walk into a sales meeting, it's who does your client talk to 
first. Um, so the, they're, I don't even know, I think they're called macroaggressions, if that's a, <laughs> if that's a phrase. These, these things happen all the time, but what, what we talk about is not just what happened, but how did you actually deal with this? And so there are all these lessons learned. And again, these are from people who've been around for quite some time, who've had a number of different experiences. And I learned from um, one of the women that we interviewed when an aggression happens towards her, she addresses it immediately. I might sit back and, and wait, but she talked about how she actually addresses it immediately. And she's like, I, I've been through this too many times to write a letter um, and I'm going to go talk to this person right now. And in a way, again, that's constructive, but to call out the issue or incident when it happens versus kind of absorbing it and letting it impact you and not dealing with it at all. And so, and in part in doing that, people learn because sometimes again, some someone may not have intended for their behavior to have a negative impact. And so it's a, it's a learning or a teaching moment. And the other benefit of doing this is we talked a lot about why aren't there more um, women leaders or um, people of color in these high level roles. And the list of black American executives Adam and I have to interview, it's triple digits. And so part of this is exposing role models to people who don't necessarily know that these individuals exist. Mm. Let's talk about the power of a role model. Yes. Tell me, tell me why that's... Uh... So when we started the interview series, I actually, and this is on LinkedIn, if anyone's curious about reading it, the title of the article I wrote about the reason we're starting this series is if you can see it, you can be it. And sometimes people don't know that they are capable of doing something if all of the people doing the work don't look like them. And I, I think that's, it, it's, a, it's amazing. And it, it's in some ways, I think at times it's hard to explain, but I think role models are just powerful and important and they make a huge difference. And when you see someone who looks like you in a position of power doing something absolutely amazing, you're like, well, maybe I can do that too. Can I ask you, kind of changing um, tack a little bit on this now, um, what do you see as the, the three sort of biggest challenges for leaders right now? I think there are more than three, but <laughs> I will pick them. <laughs> you can okay. pick three. So one is dealing with uncertainty because we just we're living in in times that are just absolutely incredible. We don't know what's around the corner. I had an employee ask me at the end of last year, Rhonda, tell us 2023 is going to be OK. And I said, I can't do. And this person was serious because I think we're, we're, we are all there's this collective fatigue. There's this collective desire for things to, quote, be back to normal. And who knows if that's ever if, we're, if the world will ever be like it was before the pandemic. And it's not to say there aren't good things that didn't come from the pandemic. But one is just dealing with uncertainty in business, uncertainty in the world and even uncertainty with with your workforce. Number two is communication 
and communicating effectively because as and all I don't want to go down the rabbit trail of hybrid work, but I've been studying how different companies have messaged to their employees returning to the workplace. And some have taken a pretty aggressive approach. Some have taken a pretty empathetic approach, but really understanding what's really going to work well for your company and your culture and how do you communicate most effectively. And if you get it wrong, how quickly can you course correct? So that is that is a challenge. And the third one, I would go back to um, employees. Employee expectations are changing so dramatically and so quickly. Um, employees want companies to take positions on social issues, which is very hard because it's a, it can be very polarizing depending on what the topic is. And you're not going to make 100% of your workforce happy with if you're taking positions on on social issues. So that's also very, very, very difficult. Are you seeing employees, um, are you seeing them ask different things as they consider joining organisations? We're not seeing them asking for dramatically different things as, as they're joining organisations. So I mentioned one of my least favourite questions was how long I work here. One of my favourite questions is are you, can you attract younger employees into your industry? And I love answering that question because the answer is yes. And, and part of that is because we are positioning what we're doing with the energy transition as an opportunity for people to be part of the solution. And so that's been very, very attractive. I haven't had a request for, a, a lot of people want flexibility, but that's not new. Um, the biggest aha I've had during the pandemic relative to flexibility has actually been with men who took their kids to school before we returned to the office and how much they enjoyed that. So I'm on my little campaign to continue encouraging all supervisors to encourage their employees who have school-age kids, let them take their kids to school because it's a finite special time in your child's childhood that you will always remember and they will always remember so and can we manage that by and large yes we we, we can for people who are in our, our workforce 35 percent of our employees can't work from home because of the nature of their roles they're on ships offshore platforms in terminals refineries but 65 percent of our employees can and so we're working through the balance of being empathetic to people who can't do their roles from home but then with the people who can let them manage their work and their lives in a manner that's in the best interest of this employee and the best interest of our business. Can I ask, you know, I, I feel like in a lot of the conversations I'm having that given a lot of the challenges, um, you know, I'm hearing expectations on leaders changing too um, in regards to the style of leadership, um, you know, skills like listening and empathy and collaboration um, you know, I think are being increasingly more sort of highly valued. And I also think that our people leaders and people leading functions like yourself in terms of people and culture, the role itself, I think, just has such a chance to be so much more strategic than I think historically that role may have been. Do you have a take on that? Well, I yes, I, I do. Um we have to make decisions that are in support 
of our business being able to execute our strategy. And our people strategy is to ensure that our employees are deliver are can we unleash their full potential so that they can help deliver on the future of, of energy. And so how do we how do we do that? Um, so you mentioned skills earlier. Skills are changing, especially technical skills, so fast it can make your head spin. And so what we do, we have a learning platform that allows employees at their own pace. Because if you think about traditional courses and learning, it was in a classroom, somebody was teaching you, it shifted to computer-based training. Well, we're letting people learn on their on their own pace in different types of formats. They still have the options to go to classroom training. They still have options to do um, computer-based training. But sometimes you can learn more from um a video or reading content. And so they can curate their own pace and mechanism and way of learning. And these skills are directly correlated to how our businesses are changing. And so that's one area is with the learning and the growth and the development of our, our workforce. We're investing a huge amount in leadership. And our CEO frequently says, people follow leaders, leaders change outcomes. And so for all 5,000 plus supervisors we have in our company, they have coaching available to them to help them become better leaders and better employees. We're also um, looking at, you mentioned, you asked me the question earlier about are people asking for different things? We're a long-term career employer. We have a long-term career employment model, but we're not going to rest on our laurels that that is going to be sufficient longer term. So even though we have this model and it served us well because our our turnover, Melissa, is four and a half percent. So the great resignation isn't really happening in our company. And again, we're not saying, okay, well, we don't have this problem. We always look at turnover and we split it up by gender, by ethnicity, by job family, by generation to make sure there aren't pockets of this. But we have to continue to look towards the future and what does the workforce of the future actually really want and need. And we're spending quite a bit of time and we have a lot of support and partnership with our business leaders to do that. How do you keep people? How do we keep people? I mentioned earlier this community that we have. So first, I'd say a couple of things. Um, we hire really smart people. Um, we don't, I mentioned the portfolio career that I've had. A lot of people have portfolio careers. And the third thing I would, I would mention is Chevron has always been an exceptional corporate citizen in the cities and the environments where we operate. And you mentioned when you were reading my bio, all of the uh, boards I'm on, that's all volunteer work supported by the company. And there are a lot of people who are proud of working here and they're proud of what we do in the communities where we operate. And I used to make a statement that Chevron is one of the best corporate citizens in the U.S. And I was corrected on a business trip when I was in West Africa by an employee who said Chevron is one of the best corporate citizens in the world, not the United States. We operate in 55 in different countries. But I think those attributes of our culture, having this strong sense of community and connective tissue, offering opportunities for growth and development, um, allowing people to have portfolio careers, and taking care of the environment, the uh, communities where we live and work is important to a lot, a lot of people. 
You mentioned right back earlier in our conversation how as part of your career you managed a section of the business at one point in time. So I assume that like profit and loss and line responsibility yes. business. Where did the choice come in for you to um, not continue down that path and head down the path um, from a people perspective? So I was um, in London for seven years. I had three different jobs and I will... I will raise my hand to do all kinds of things that I think I, I can do and I think I can do well. And I left the HR function to be the mark. I started out in a marketing director role in um, our uh, in our European marketing business. And I didn't think I would be there. We actually are very intentional of having leaders as they progress through their careers work outside of their home country. I, I talked about the importance of perspective. Being a global organization, it's important for us to have people work outside of um, out of their home country for their growth and development. So it was my turn to do that. And it, it ended up not necessarily being an HR role. And people asked me the question, well, was that really hard? And the answer was no, because what when I was the HR leader for the marketing business, I've always looked um, for areas where I can make a difference. I volunteer to work on different projects. I went on sales calls. So I knew the business pretty well. We had merged with Texaco and the business unit I went over to be the marketing director for, we were still doing a lot of integration work and standardization of processes, a lot of things you do in the HR function. So understanding what skills you have that are transferable, um, I think is important. So it wasn't nearly as hard as a transition as anyone thought. That morphed into due to some portfolio rationalization and my boss at the time leaving and my raising my hand saying, I'd be interested in doing this smaller PL role um, in my staying to do that and learning quite a bit. And one of, I don't talk about this a lot because it was just very odd. We decided to divest of our European assets. We sold them to Valero. And the only time I actively campaigned to stay in a job was when we were selling our business to Valero. And the person I was working for at the time said, that is not a smart idea. We're going to divest of these assets and you're not going to have a job. And I was managing this group of people who were frightened about being sold to a company, an American company they weren't familiar with. And it was more important for me to see that to closure and to not do what I felt like would be abandoning them versus I'm going to leave you so I can kind of progress my career. And I have, I'm a boomeranger. I worked for Chevron early in my career. I left and I came back and I thought, well, I'm employable. I know I'm employable. It. What's my priority? What is most important? And it was seeing this to closure and I will just figure out what happens when, um, when this transaction closes. So the transaction closed and the opportunity to be the head of HR for the entire business unit I was in was open. And our current CEO was the head of our downstream business. And he said, he called me, he said, are you interested in this job? It was my favorite job in the whole company because I knew all of the businesses. I knew all of the people. And it was just, um, it was an amazing mix of um, having strong business acumen in, in that business unit and knowing the organization incredibly well. And that's why I went back. That's the role I had before I took on this one. Fantastic. I just want to take us back to a spot earlier in the conversation. After you had that uncomfortable but necessary conversation with your colleagues, what changed? I think they learned a bit more about what my 
work life experiences had been like because I talked about things I never talk about. It's very analogous to the series Adam and I are doing. People are having experiences, some of which weigh heavily on them, but they don't talk about them. Or if we do talk about them, we talk about them. I might talk about them to a peer of mine who might be a Black executive in another company. And so this issue and the importance of empathy and perspective, if I haven't learned anything in the last few years, it's of the power and importance of that. So um, it gave me a lot more courage. Um, I can talk to my, I don't, if I, I, I really don't get talked over in meetings anymore because I think I made my point <laughs> about that. But it just, it was, in some ways it was freeing. For me personally, it was, it was very freeing. I wasn't carrying the kind of, this is how I feel on my shoulders and I'm all alone and I'm not, it allowed me to talk about it much more freely and much more comfortably than I probably would have before. With my peers, um, I think they understand me a little bit better, even though we've known each other a really long time. It's incredible, and it kind of circles back a little bit. I don't know whether you teared up in that conversation or not, and I don't know whether you'll tear up over cake for your one <laughs> colleague. Um, but that power of vulnerability and you know, the, the trust that that builds and the confidence that that can build in yourself for having gone through it. I don't think it matters whether you tear up or not. <laughs> I have come to the conclusion that you are correct because for a long time I had this issue with women crying at work mm -hmm. and I thought it was a sign of weakness and it isn't. And so um, my thinking on this has evolved greatly. And part of why I don't want to tear up at Colleen's cake party is I want to get through what I want to say <laughs> about her. And I thought it'll mess up my, my what, what I want to say about how much she's, she's meant to me. So, um, and Colleen and I, I'll tell you a quick funny story. One of our former bosses was retiring and he cried in a meeting. He just was realizing, and when you spend over half your life in one place and you grow old with people, it's very emotional when you leave. And we were sitting in this meeting one day and he just started to cry because it hit him. My, I'm not going to be with you guys much longer. And so at his equivalent of a cake party, well, before he had his party, Colleen and I sat down and told him, you will not cry. You are going to get through <laughs> And the two of us had this discussion with him. And I'm sure he's going to be, he's retired, long retired, but he'll be at her cake event. He was at a retirement dinner. But the day of his farewell, I had a small package of tissue in my pocket and I handed it to him. And I said, this is in case you don't make it. Yeah. And so as he's giving, as he's giving his, his speech, because people give speeches and you go, the person retiring goes last. I was sitting in the front row. He walked over, he reached in his pocket and he tossed the tissue to me and he said you didn't think I was going to make it and he continued on with his speech it was one of those just absolutely wonderful moments yeah I mean we're human so the safety exactly. of turn up at work and be ourselves you know I think is um is so critical um my final question Rhonda that I ask everybody is from your perspective what does brave feminine leadership look like and do you think it needs to change so I don't think it needs to change I think Courage is a word that I think 
is directly linked to brave feminine leadership. And we've talked without necessarily using the word courage a lot about some courageous things. And when anyone um, is a first or a pioneer or an only, it takes courage to do a number of things. Having the conversation I had with my peers, it takes courage if you face an aggression to call someone out on what that aggression is so that, and in a way where you don't want to get someone's backup, but you want them to learn and grow and, and understand because our experiences are different. They are. And that's, that's, that's not an opinion. That's actually a fact. And so having the courage to talk about what these differences are um, I think is connected to being um, a female leader, being a leader who's a per, uh, or a leader who's a person of color. Thank you so much for adding your voice to our conversation. I knew that we would have a rich conversation together and I've thoroughly enjoyed the time that we've spent together. Thank you, Rhonda. Well, thank you, Melissa. It's an honor to be included with this uh, list of luminaries that you've included in your series.